Welcome to the Avenue Community Church's podcast. We are a family of Christ followers seeking shalom in Memphis. We pray that you are encouraged by today's message. And as you listen, may the word of God shape you to be more like him. Before we get into reasons why people deconstruct, I, w- I kind of want to do a few things tonight. Uh, so here's some of our object- objectives. I want us to review week one again because there, there's some more things I want to share about that I didn't share last week about week one. Uh, secondly, we're going to look at reasons why many are deconstructing their faith. Uh, there's four main reasons why. It's a Gospel Coalition blog that's really good. Now, it will not be the four reasons we probably come up with after we read, but it's a great starting point for us for our session tonight to have deeper dialogue. So I want us to look at that blog and then discuss it. And then lastly, uh, we look at Nehemiah's ministry in post-exile Israel. Personally, one of my favorite time periods in Scripture, probably my favorite time period in Scripture is post-exile when Israel comes back home. Uh, We'll look at Nehemiah's ministry uh, and how that can be um, kind of like a canvas for those who are reconstructing or putting their faith or um, even their their lives back together, right? So we're going to look at that. So just want to look at, uh, for those that weren't here last week, I want to do this for you. But last week we defined uh, deconstruction and we looked at its history. Uh, not to put anybody on the spot, but does anybody remember our, our, de- our definition or at least describing our definition of deconstruction? I would love to hear whoever wants to go. If not, that is okay. Good, so just to recap for those that weren't here, yes, they said both of those things and they're correct. But deconstruction is one of the major tenets of postmodernism. And postmodernism looks at uh, people's experiences rather than the, the older model of modernism that say we look at reason and science. In other words, postmodernism looks at removing absolutes. Big grand narratives that society traditionally had to now, to now the issue is, okay, people's experiences are subjective. And because they are subjective, these grand narratives, these absolutes, we cannot, we cannot accept. So the idea behind that whole idea is um, tearing down power structures where absolutes typically come from, right? And leveling out that power to where everyone's voice can be heard, seen, and listened to and brought to the table. That's what postmodernism does. And what deconstruction does is it takes apart these grand narratives to the point to where we look at what needs to be kept and what needs to be done away with. So that's the entire idea of deconstruction in a postmodern society. And we do it in our lives and sometimes we don't know it, right? Last week we talked about a lot of us with family traditions, how a lot of us have grown up. Another thing about postmodernism is it's, I don't want to say it's anti-tradition, but it doesn't bow down to tradition. It's this, it's this idea of tradition is good for some things, but what needs to be adhered to that fits where we are and what needs to be done away with, right? That's deconstruction in a way, right? Uh, Sierra mentioned Captain America, right? This superhero, right? This guy that's, that's, that's really good, does good all the time, always takes orders, always obeys the U.S. government. What happens when Cap no longer listens to the government and Cap that is now this patriot is now an insurgent, right? 
the Russo brothers destroyed this entire concept of Captain America to show what happens when Cap is no longer a soldier in World War II, but he's a hero in modern times where it's no longer black and white with evil, but there's gray areas. Right, what does Cap do? They deconstructed the, the narrative of Captain America. It's all about deconstructing narratives, right? Um, and then as we get into postmodernism and deconstruction, uh, we talked about the zeitgeist or the spiritual climate that we have uh, in this postmodern worldview. And I want us to, and I, I kind of want to um, explain this a little bit better, but um, the world system that we have, this fallen world, as Paul tells us in Ephesians and also various places, that it's under the influence of the, of the evil one of Satan, right? And so when, these, so when these secular worldviews are circulating in our society, we have an evil one that is looking to snatch the seed of God's word away from those that have received it, right? And so, well, a lot of times what you kind of see spiritually is through this world system, through this secular climate of postmodernism, deconstruction, right? Satan, because he has power, y'all, he has not all power like God and like Christ, but he does have power and influence. And he's using a lot of times these worldviews to take us away from our faith. Paul says in Colossians, deceptive philosophies. In the New Testament church, first century, they had the exact, they had the exact same issues, worldly philosophies that had ounces of the truth, but it was leading people astray. And the New Testament writers frequently wrote their letters to address these philosophies and these issues. It's no different than today. So as we talk about these worldviews in our secular society, we have to be mindful of what does scripture teach us? How can scripture help us to examine what society is saying and what may have some relevance, but also what needs to be done away with? Because if not, it can lead us astray or at least hinder our walk with the Lord. Right now, as we talk about the influence of Satan in this world system and ideologies, I also gave us healthy examples of reconstruction. Right but also unhealthy concepts of deconstruction, right? So I mentioned Francis, Francis Schaeffer, one of the most renowned apologists of our time, had to restructure his faith because he saw, as kind of like Sarah said, right? In his immediate faith context, he saw some things that disturbed him, that grieved him. And so for months, he had to examine his own faith. In the process, he became one of the most renowned people of the past hundred years in the Christian faith, a strong apologist and philosopher for the Lord. Martin Luther, right? I wouldn't say he deconstructed, de deconstructed, but more so reformed, right? He was, he, was, he was a Catholic monk. He was reading scripture and he saw the culture. He was reading scripture and he saw the culture. He realized you know, something's not right with this. And it was through his work that we get our denominations, our Protestant faith today, right? Then we also looked at unhealthy deconstruction, which is uh, moral relativism, right? That focuses, focuses on our own experiences, 
our own truths, right, is what they say. What is your truth? My truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth, right? This, 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 uh, this multiple truth society and how a lot of times even with unhealthy deconstruction, particularly in faith circles, what we'll do is we will say scripture says this and we'll try to make scripture into what we want it to say, into how we want to feel about it. Not so much what God's word says, right? Relativism, right? So, mm -hmm. Soup Campbell said this. Sarah knows Soup Campbell really well. Soup was like, he says, so I never forget. He, uh, he said, the Holy Spirit sometimes is, 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 the way he works with you can be like a, like a computer on a hard drive. A hard drive is able to store information that's, that's put in it. And at the right time when you need it, you're, you're able to pull it up. If there's nothing in you, if there's no word in you, then when the time comes for you to need it, it will not be there. Whether it be in your own life as you fight temptation, navigate trials and systems, I mean, or seasons, or when you have to share with somebody, evangelize, preach, teach, engage, if there's no word in you, the spirit can't pull it out of you. It's imperative that the word of God is in us to where like a hard drive, the word is stored. So when the time is right, it can come right on up. To kind of put this into, because I want us to empathize with people too, right? Because there's, there's pain that real people encounter that leads to this. And the reason why, y'all, Christ has to be the remedy is because, as we all know, we have a fallen nature. We have a sinful nature, right? And that's twofold. We sin against people. Let me say it this way. People sin against us. And because we are fallen sinners in need of grace and redemption, our response to sin and brokenness is more sin and brokenness. And so when we talk about deconstruction and why many people walk away from the faith because of legit hurt. And let me say this too. Paul says this in Romans. As he is indicting humanity for their sin in Romans 1. First, he calls out the Gentiles, right, by saying that there is a law of God written on your conscience, right, that tells you right from wrong. You don't need God's re revealed law to know right from wrong. There is a consciousness on your heart that exposes your guilt. Then he takes both fingers. He points one finger at the Jew, at, at the Gentiles. He po points multiple at the Jews. He's just like, man, but y'all, not only do you have that, but you have the revealed word. God's supernatural revelation through his prophets and his, and, and his leaders came to you and gave you the word. But guess what? Because you couldn't obey, your name is blasphemed among those who are supposed to see you as an example. And he quotes the prophet Isaiah when he says it. And he says, because of your failure to be the example, these people are stumbling. So, yes, we are all indicted because of sin, right? Every person on this planet. But what really exposes our brokenness 
is when we encounter sin that affects us, our response is by sin outside the grace of God. But yet there is still a, a, a culpability that God's people have. When we fail to represent him, unbelievers will stumble because we're called to be a light. And when we are not shining light, there's repercussions of it. And so, yes, there is sin that leads us to deconstruct and walk away from the faith. But I'll get the street cred in a second. But those three reveal our brokenness, whether whether we're committing it or we're receiving or we are receiving somebody else's brokenness, too. So <clears throat> I um, I was this early earlier this, this year in January. I was at a conference and I was sharing on, 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 on some content for Gen Z, on, for Gen Z and millennials. And, and our Jew 3 founder was speaking to, and she spoke and she gave this example. She had a friend that was kind of in this process of like questioning their faith, right? And so she talked with him, she engaged with him and, and the more she talked to him, right, at the end of the day, she got to the root of the answer, talking with him and engaging with him, right? And here was what, and this is why he was willing to reconsider his entire faith. He was a single guy that wanted to sleep with his girlfriend without feeling, remote, without feeling guilt or conviction. He was willing to go against his entire faith, tear apart his entire faith, just because he wanted to connect with his girlfriend in a way that was reserved for biblical marriage without conviction and without remorse. Sometimes it can be, sometimes people deconstruct for complex reasons. In fact, uh, Josh and Jordan brought two articles. I wrote, I wrote this one right here. For the, for, the, for the North American Mission Board, but atheism in the black community, right? And so in this article, I write about why atheism has increased among black Americans, a, a, a group in America that traditionally was tied to the church. Why are many leaving it, right? Sometimes it can be as complex as justice and race issues, which I talked about, or sometimes as simple as, man, I want to sleep with my girlfriend and be okay with it. Right. It's amazing what sin can make us do. Right. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, as he's talking about the Christians not falling back, says that sin is deceitful. The deceitfulness of sin. It's amazing what sin can make you believe. Um, switching gears, but, stay, but still staying on, on, on topic somewhat. Um, Bob brought this up. Thank you, Bob. Beat me to it. Is deconstruction a redeemable word or philosophy? And I say that because some Christian leaders feel like the word should be done away with because there's such a negative anti-Christian, anti-gospel connotation to it. That it should be done away with. Others, like my brother in this article, Josh Butler, is fine with using it 
as long as it has a gospel redemptive narrative to it. So I ask you guys, it's just a fun question. Is it redeemable? Yes or no? And I'm saying that because I am preparing you now for the conversations out there. Because out there, there's many that will be like, oh, I, I hate that word. We're not using that. And there are others who will be like, yes, it can be redeemable, like my guy <laughs> Josh Butler, right? How do you engage both people? But again, it's redeemable. So I am going to give a case for and against why we should use the word deconstruction and, and its philosophy. All right. Biblical examples for um, one of my favorite Christian rappers. His name is The Truth, Emmanuel Lambert. Uh, he did a series, a video this, this past holiday season on Christmas. Because Christmas, because we, we are in a deconstructive postmodern society, has come under fire, right? It has. Um, he mentions the word co-opt, right? And he says that throughout time, throughout biblical history, God has always co-opted culture. This is what co-op means. It doesn't mean to steal from something. It means to take what is being said and use it to, to point to a higher truth to a higher concept. And I'm gonna give biblical examples of how in, in scripture we have seen co-opt the word logos. John 1, 1, in the beginning was logos. The word was with God and the word was God, right? That's, that's the term he uses. Logos was not a biblical term. It was a secular Greek term that, 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 that talked about reason, that described reason. Man's intellect, was one example of Logos, but also to the Greeks, it was also the divine order. There's a divine order by the gods that has ordered society and creation. There's a divine order that we see in the world. Secular Greeks said this, but because we have a higher truth found in Christ, found in the gospel, John says, you guys think, you know what Logos is? No, this is really Logos, the image of the invisible God. God made the world through his son, the wise one, the word of God made flesh, right? The divine order, the divine reason of God was made flesh into a person and him dwells the fullness of the Godhead, right? They used the term logos because it was a secular word that pointed to a, a deeper spiritual reality. Christ is the logos, the word of God. Mars Hill, Acts 17. Paul comes to Athens, right? And, and this, this is so funny. I love the story. Paul has just gotten beat to within an inch of his life in previous chapters. And Paul is causing up so much trouble that his crew was like, AG, we're going to drop you off in Athens. Sit tight. Don't do nothing. We'll come back for you. Paul doesn't do that. Paul was just, Paul was just that dude, y'all. He's just that dude. So he just does his little Paul thing, comes to Athens, right? Home of the Greek philosophers that we talk about. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, right? And he comes to Mars Hill. And he's in Mars Hill and he's in Athens and he sees all these gods. 
And the Bible says that Paul saw so much idolatry, he was grieved in his spirit. And also in Mars Hill was where they debated philosophies of their day. Every thought, every worldview, every idea was brought to Mars Hill for debates, for conversation, for dialogue. Paul comes to Mars Hill and he says, y'all have a statue to an unknown God, right? Let me tell you who this God is. So he takes where they were as a cultural society and says, you have this unknown God right here and you say that there's a temple made for him, but I know the true God to where no temple can hold him. As in this guy we move and we have our being, he is co-opting something. In fact, Paul even quotes their secular poets to point to the gospel. Here's an example of co-opting in scripture, right? Something from the culture that speaks to a higher truth. Uh, examples against, right? In Colossians and 1 Corinthians, where Paul writes also about a worldly deceptive philosophies, right? Somebody read 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, 18 through 25. So Paul's making a case here about the philosophers of this age, right? That despite what you know, despite what you're saying, guess what? In the eyes of God, it is foolish. Because we serve the all wise one who through the cross does two things. He shows his divine wisdom, but also his power, a stumbling block for those that are seeking wisdom in a secular context, but also a stumbling block for those that doubt God's miraculous working power, the cross. It's a stumbling block to every philosophy of this age and the ages to come, right? Cultural examples for uh, um, deconstruction, all right? I'm saying y'all, y'all not gonna like me because my purpose of all this is to get you to think, right? I want you to have evidences of why we should probably use the word deconstruction or why we should just change it to something else, right? So I'm gonna, y'all gonna, not gonna like me, it is okay. <laughs> but hip hop. A cultural example four. I love this. Y'all gonna love this. So hip hop is the genre in black culture that speaks to our experience. It originated in the 1970s. And the Great Migration took place from 1910 to about 1970. I'm going somewhere. It is one of the largest migrations in American history where millions of black Americans left the South post-Civil War to escape the horror they were experiencing because of racism, Ku Klux Klan, and other groups. They left the South and went to the North, the East Coast, and also to the West Coast. A 60-year period of blacks leaving a region because of racism. At the end of the Great Migration period, right, hip-hop arrives on the scene. And what the Great Migration kind of does is it, it kind of is like this renewal in the black consciousness. Now that we are free from the terrorism of the South, how do we figure out who we are in America? That's where you start to see a lot of groups like the black Hebrew Israelites 
Nation of Islam. These groups came out of the Great Migration. You also saw this increased political activity, this, um, this um, what's what I'm looking for? You saw more radical political fire from the black community due to the Great Migration, this, this, this renewal of the black consciousness. We also get Black History Month, this month, February, out of the Great Migration. And at the end of that, as black consciousness is kind of being redeveloped, man, hip hop arrives on the scene. And most of the hip hop originators were not Christian, right? In fact, a lot of them weren't. And so even with hip hop, man, we have seen God redeem a genre that was secular, right? I'm not saying hip hop is evil, because hip hop spoke to the black experience, but it wasn't inherently Christian. I can say that and still be okay. But with hip hop, we saw a redemption about 20 years ago with cross movement, ambassador, Lecrae, the truth, the tonic, right? These guys came out of hip hop culture, redeemed it, and many of us and our friends, our faith grew during this time because we saw an explosion in Christian hip hop. We, we literally saw in our lifetime, God redeem a musical genre for his glory. Now, again, I'm not saying hip hop is evil, but we saw God take a cultural phenomenon in hip hop culture. And we saw the gospel infused with it and millions were changed because of it. God can redeem cultures and subcultures, and we've seen him do it. Uh, I put Christmas up here. This is controversial, but I got a bone to pick with people about Christmas, so I'm just going to pick it right. This is, let's just do it. So Christmas is very controversial, but let me just break down um, the origins of Christmas in a few ways. One, there's a couple of ideas of Christmas's origin. One is so invictus. This is the day of the unconquered sun. December 25th. Also, December 25th, you had the Iranian god Mithra that was also the sun god that was celebrated on December 25th. Um, and Constantine, when he um, comes into power, makes Christ's birthday on December 25th, right? That is one origin of Christmas. You have two more, though, that I want to get to. Uh, my friend is Orthodox. He is Orthodox. Uh, he's not Protestant. And an and Orthodox and Catholic faith you have what's called Annunciation, March 25th. It is the day they believe that the angel visited Mary to tell her about Christ. Nine months later, you had December 25th. So they believe that the Annunciation of Mary was, a, was around the same time she was conceived. Nine months later, Christ is here. So that's two examples of how we get Christmas. The third one is this. Many of the ancients believed that um, the day that you were born is also the, the, the day that you died, right? That's what they believed around that time in, 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 in history. So if they believed Jesus died around March 25th, then by nature, because of how they thought, so would his birthday be, Christmas time. That's three different definitions of how we get Christmas. And there could be truth to all of them, right? 
But the reason why I gave that as a co-opt example is because of this. What is what does the earth tell us? The winter solstice is around that time. It's around the darkest times of the year. Probably the the, the darkest times of the year. Darkness has covered the earth. And I believe God is so sovereign that God has allowed this to happen with Christmas. If darkness is, 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 is at its height at this period of time, and we worship the light of the world being born, then there's an example that's given that says that at the height of darkness, God still gives light. When darkness seems like it has covered the earth, man, light is born, eternal light is born. I would even say too, speaking to the sun gods of Rome and, and Iran, right, Mithra and, and Saturn or Sol, right? It was called the, un, the invincible sun, the unconquered sun. That's what Sol Invictus was, the, the, December 25th. So if Rome worshiped the unconquerable sun, what happens when we actually have the unconquerable sun? the one that has defeated death, hell, and the grave, right? And so this is a cultural example of potentially secular ideas that point to a deeper spiritual reality. Yes, you may have these false gods of the sun, but we have a true sun that sits high, that has conquered all darkness, and he's calling all men to himself. Right. And so I want to give Christmas as a cultural example of how God can co-opt and also redeem cultural ideas. Cultural examples against. <laughs> All right. Um, Christianity and scripture are the ultimate absolutes. And in postmodernism and deconstruction, absolutes have to be removed. It's a slippery slope when you do this because the idea of postmodernism is to remove the absolutes. But what happens when you have the absolute truth? What happens when you have an, un an unshakable foundation that society wants to shake? There's a budding of the heads right there. And so if society wants to remove absolutes with postmodernism and deconstruction, as a Christian, that's impossible to do because we have the absolute truth and authority found in Christ and the gospel and God's word. And this is why these conversations are important, y'all. This is great to talk about amongst us, right? But when you're with your family during the holidays or among your coworkers, or people on your, in your neighborhood, on your block. Man, there has to be some cultural competency that needs to take place. <laughs> and not only cultural competency, but how has the scripture souped up your cultural competency to where you can still share the truth of the gospel in the midst, in the midst of buzzwords. Okay. Seminary can teach you a lot of stuff teach a lot of words, but to be culturally competent, that takes some intention and a lot of listening. Come on, you gonna say something? <laughs> yeah.
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I found engaging people on a number of topics. I've gained more listeners when I've, when I've, I've gained more people willing to hear me when I listen more. Because I may have every answer to what you're saying. And I may be in my mind like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but I'm still listening to them because um, Lisa Fields says this, and Lisa, our Jew 3 founder, is somebody I deeply respect because she is a black woman doing apologetics and she's so humble. She says something that I always think about. You don't answer people's You're answering people when they talk to you, when they ask you questions. Like, it's not so much about proving them that they're wrong or foolish in their beliefs, but can I answer your soul? Can I answer the questions of your heart? That's what wins people. That's what makes people listen to you. It's because at the end of the day, I, I know you asked me these questions about God and deconstruction and walking away from faith and why the Bible ain't real. And we're trying to sit here and argue about inerrancy and why they wrong about that. But truth be told, they just like, man, I was in church my whole life and I saw my entire family get abused, misused by these leaders in this church and I can't stand them. If you choose to take deconstruction out your vocabulary, if, just if you choose to, there are some words that can kind of help. Reforming. And my friend here who pastors in Memphis says renovating, a renovative faith, right? Think about a home that needs repair, right? You're not going to tear down the entire home because the bones are good. The structure is, is great. Don't tear down the structure. But there may be some rooms that have gotten destroyed, that have gotten dusted up, that are outdated, that are not working, that's actually damaging, and maybe some safety concerns. You don't destroy the bones, you, you renovate the inside. So what needs to be fixed is fixed, but the house is kept up. I think our faith is the same way. The gospel stands on its own. The house of the gospel is firm. It's a firm foundation. I, you know, it's a firm foundation. But sometimes because of culture, sometimes because of our own sin, other people's sin, because of the brokenness of this world, man, sometimes my faith is strong. But God, you got to tear some stuff down in my mind, some strongholds that have occurred because of what I've encountered and what I've seen. So reformation is good. Renovating is good if you choose to not use deconstruct or reconstruct. Right. But the concept is the same. The gospel is secure, but because of sin, we have to renovate. We have to deconstruct. We have to reconstruct sometimes. All right. So now, uh, <laughs> Nehemiah. All right. So that's me right there, y'all. Y'all see me in college? <laughs> that is me in college. All right. So I'll be brief with this. Um, Nehemiah was a story that God used when I was a freshman in college. I would not go into detail of my story because I do not. Because I've learned that sometimes sharing your story for people in your past that listen, it can sometimes offend them. And you don't want to be a stumbling block to them. I've learned that 
I just can't be free randomly about my story because I still care about folks from my past. And sometimes with sharing my testimony, it can make them look a certain way. So I would never do that openly on the mic. But I can say this. I can say this. I struggled my first year because I knew my life needed to change. And I knew that God supernaturally took me out of a place and freed me to walk with him. I didn't know how, though. I didn't. I knew that God did something to where I'm free from my past, free from old influences, free from things, but I still don't know how to walk in my faith. And I remember in my dorm room my freshman year in tears because I didn't know how to do this. I knew Christ was real. Didn't know apologetics, didn't know all this stuff right here, but I knew God had done something in my life and I needed help. And randomly, I'm going through the Bible, just going through books, just trying to, just, just hoping for a, a prayer of something. And I come across this book called Nehemiah, had never heard of Nehemiah. And I rarely ever say God said this, but looking back 20 years, 18, 15 years, I can say, God said, read Nehemiah. And I read Nehemiah. And in that moment, God was like, despite the opposition around you, I'm going to rebuild you. And God did it. So Nehemiah, this is what Nehemiah does um, in the book. Sin and brokenness has left Israel in ruins. Um, I mentioned this be, before. Um, sin is deceitful. It can lead many to unbelief. It can destroy our faith because of what happens when we sin and other people sin too. It can make us doubt. Jesus also says in Matthew 24, 12, that sin can make us cynical, loveless, and faithless. In fact, the exact quote is, because of the increase of wickedness, love will wax cold. And we're seeing that today. Cynical, untrusting, Lack of love, right? Impatience because of sin. It has wrecked our society. We are a cynical people because of sin. It can do that. It was God's desire for Israel to rebuild what was destroyed. God doesn't want us to sit in a broken faith. God desires that not only our faith, our relationship with him being is rebuilt, but he wants to do it. He desires to do it. One thing I love about Nehemiah is over and over, he says, God, man, these are your people. You promised to bring us back here. And we see that in the text. What does that mean for people deconstructing that are looking for answers for their faith? If they're really in faith and God knows who really is, God, that's not for us to decide. God knows who's really in faith and who's sincere with this. It is God's will that they rebuild and that they get restored and that they come back. The same with Israel. It was his will, y'all. Um, also, too, they rebuilt in community. 
with people like themselves. They weren't rebuilding this place on their own. They had like-minded people who loved God just like them that were rebuilding with them. Reconstruction is never done alone. And what we see a lot of times in our society with, with, with reconstruction after deconstruction is we feel like it's on us to figure it out. We need people beside us while we do it that love us. And to, our, and to this point right here, I'm going to skip ahead and, and come back. Not only do we need people with us, but y'all, we need godly leaders. You had Haggai and Zechariah prophesying to the people as they rebuilt. You had Ezra the priest, who was also around this time, making reforms, right? Making priestly and faith reforms as they were rebuilding. You had Zerubbabel, the governor, who was also following the orders of the prophet. You had Nehemiah, who was a lay leader, y'all. I love that story. Nehemiah was not a priest. He was not a prophet. He was not a king. He was a lay leader, as you would say. So to put those two points together, you can't reconstruct alone, and you need godly leaders walking beside you as you do it. All right, back to the, back to the last slide. I love this part right here. Whether it be cultural or spiritual, there will be opposition. As I mentioned earlier, there is an enemy in the world that does not want to see God's people thrive, that wants to keep us bound, keep us broken, keep us in our sin. Know that as you reconstruct, you will have opposition. That's why you can't do it alone, right? Uh, and then lastly, God's word helps us rebuild. Not only the words of the prophet Haggai that exhorted them to keep rebuilding when they stopped, but also if you read those stories in Ezra and Nehemiah, there was a love for God's word once it was complete that is astounding. There was a recommitment to God's word like never before. So as you reconstruct, there is no true faith reconstruction, renovation, reformation, whatever you want to use. There is no reconstruction without an unswerving allegiance to God's word. It should make us stronger in our faith. Not a straw man faith. Not a raggedy house faith. Right. But a strong house, a strong towered faith. That, that God desires us to have. And be careful not to take God's word and make it into what we want it to be because we're doing a selfish, cultural, sinful reconstruction. But it has to be what thus saith the Lord. That's the only true reconstruction. I think that's why I love Nehemiah and post-exile the most. And I'll, and I'll keep this short. But... In the Old Covenant, Jerusalem was God's city. The temple, the Holy of Holies, right, was, was, was built to mimic the tabernacle of heaven. God met his people here. This was the, the center of their relationship. And when it was destroyed, Israel was left like, like, how do we do this? That's why the prophets had to keep speaking in exile to say, hey, 
God has not forgotten about you. God is guiding you. God is with you. But until you go back home, settle here, seek the peace of your city. But in 70 years, I'll bring you back home. And so God brings them back home. Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai is this time period. And as they're rebuilding Jerusalem, they're rebuilding the temple. It's a sign that not only has God not left them, but he's restoring them. Their faith is being renewed because they're seeing the promises of God come to pass. And so rebuilding our faith life as we reconstruct, renovate, whatever you want to use. God desires that we do it. And as we do it the right way with him guiding, him directing, him pushing, right? We will have something amazing that the world can see where we can be faithful ambassadors of the kingdom.